and this is Cheryl Linker, and I'm here with Julia Mahood, who is a Metro Atlanta Beekeeper Association member, as well as many, many other things in the beekeeping world. Good morning, Julia. Good morning. So nice to be here. I'm glad you're here. It's a uh, crazy, rainy day in Atlanta, and I think we're... Uh, just thinking about the little bees in their hives, and they're all warm and toasty, and we're all out getting wet. That's right. Tell us about um, your, how you, I know you've been on the show before, but just to reintroduce yourself, um, Julia is one of 31 master beekeepers in the state of Georgia, which is a very, very um, high ranking in the beekeeping world, and her 17-year-old son, Noah, I just found out, is the youngest master beekeeper in atlanta he is much to his uh he, he gets embarrassed when i brag about him but it's a it's quite an accomplishment for a 17 year old it, he got it when he was 16 and it takes at least three years um there's three there are actually four levels in the master beekeeper program in georgia there's the certified level and then the journeyman and then the master and there is one more level it's called master craftsman there's only one master craftsman beekeeper in georgia and uh um, so do you aspire to that I level? think about it, but you really have to be a full-time commercial beekeeper or, or close to get that because you have to do research and um, there's a lot to it. But who knows? Maybe someday. But hey, it's something, you know, you're young. You, have a, lot, you, have, yeah. you have a lot to look forward to. Well, I just want to talk about a little bit um, about a very important event in Atlanta that's coming up, and it's the Beekeeping Short Course. So why don't you just tell us all about that? Well, the Metro Atlanta Beekeepers Association, which is a great, uh, it is a 401c3 nonprofit organization, and we're it's a beekeeping club, and we meet every month at the Atlanta Botanical Gardens, um, and we have great speakers, um, just all kinds of, from everything about beekeeping. We have a lot of speakers from University of Georgia, and sometimes we get big-name speakers coming in. But one of the great things that the club does is it mentors new beekeepers and helps new beekeepers get started. And they, the club started doing a short course several years ago. And I don't know why beekeepers call a one-day course a short course, but that's just the vernacular. So, so it's a one-day. That's where somebody would come if they knew yep. nothing about beekeeping. Or if they knew a little bit, either way. So it's, it's 8.30 to 4.30. And it's basically everything you need to know to get started as a backyard beekeeper. Or if you're just interested in beekeeping, you can just come and and learn more about beekeeping. But um, we have our, some of our master beekeepers in the club speaking. We have Jennifer Berry, who's an entomologist from the University of Georgia, speaking. And um, it's a great day. It's um, uh, Lyndon Tillman and I are the co-chairs. Lyndon's another master beekeeper who's been on your show before, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, we're really excited about it. So it's... it's uh, January 18th, and it's all day long at the Atlanta Botanical Gardens. You do have to register ahead of time, and you can do that from the Metro Atlanta website. But um, yeah, and it, the, the Metro um, Atlanta Beekeeping Association is a really, really interesting website. If you just go through um, the website and click on everything they've got, you will learn so much just to kind of get you started. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's a great resource. Is this the kind of association that? Um, our listeners all over the country would have these type organizations in yes. other states? Yes. There are okay. lots of bee clubs, we okay. call them, yeah. They're called bee clubs. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so do you guys ever get together and have national bee associations or to look at the long-term health of bees? And Well, there are conferences and things like that, but I don't think that the clubs particularly have any. Um, Just the top people in the industry. And Yeah. Well, there are some bigger conferences, and they invite the 
you know, okay. experts. And um, okay, okay. Well, listen. Let's just kick it off and get started. I really think um, of all the shows I've ever done on this show, this is one of the ones that I'm most amazed by the creatures on this earth, be it plant or animal, because I just think the bees are just such, I don't know, they're organized, they they seem to be compassionate, they're smart, and heck yeah, they're hard workers, so let's just kind of talk about why people might want to become a backyard beekeeper. Great. Well, honeybees are, um, they're our, our favorite pollinators. They are, um, there's, there is no other pollinator that that is as good at pollinating as, as honeybees are. And the reason that there are several reasons, but one is that honeybees don't, most um, bees and wasps die out completely in the winter, and honeybees, honeybees don't die out, and they don't even hibernate. They actually overwinter. So they, they live mm-hmm. as a colony over winter. And because they do that, their numbers can really be pumped up quickly in the spring. So um, actually the queens, because the days that are now getting longer, because we've passed the, the winter solstice, the queen starts laying eggs, they say, on December 21st. She starts, some the bees know from the light daylight hours. I told um, you they were they, smart. Yeah. They so gradually start start uh, laying eggs, and then the queen and her, when she's the, the busiest, I hear anywhere between 1,500 and 2,000 eggs a day. Fifteen hundred and two thousand. Yeah. So the the honeybee population goes from maybe fifteen to twenty thousand in the winter, to sixty to even eighty thousand in the spring. So you think about eighty thousand, sixty thousand little pollinators and how much work they can get done. And so what the bees do is they the queen will start laying some. They say anytime after December twenty first, and then when the when the workers start bringing back pollen, so they they actively collect pollen and pack it on their pollen baskets, and you can see it coming in on their little but hind not legs. they're collecting pollen on the winter solstice, are they? Not on the winter solstice, but they will. You know, in Atlanta, as soon yeah. as things start, they every every time there's a warm day, they go out and check it out. What's right. going on? And as soon as the workers who are out checking it out, and that's above out, sixty, right? Well, they I think above fifty they can oh, they can 50. get out. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, they um, they go out and as soon as they start bringing back pollen, that's the that's their protein source, and they have to have that to really raise brood. So that's when the queen will start laying in earnest, so and, and really start laying. But they, you know, as, as it gets warmer, she lays more and more and more. In Atlanta, you know, in, in the spring when everything's blooming, we have our what we call our peak nectar flow, and that's really when the bees make enough honey to store. So the bee population they want to have enough numbers to take advantage of that. So, but if you think about it, so you've got 60,000 bees in a colony, and that's just in one colony, um, and they live in a colony. They they're actually don't just tolerate humans raising them, so to speak. They actually thrive in that environment. So they live in a, a beehive, a box that's movable. So uh, they can be moved around to different farms and stuff easily to pollinate crops. And another interesting, fascinating thing to me about honeybees is they'll pretty much go when they when they find a nectar source. One bee, she's not going to go to if you see one out in your garden. They're not going. She's not going to go get some nectar from your rosemary plant and then go over to your echinacea and then go over to your mint. She's going to do one blossom at a, one flower type at a time. So she's not going to cross pollinate things. She's going to, you know, they're pretty. They stick with one thing at a time, which is another reason what makes them really effective pollinators. Well, I thought it was really interesting. Something that you just said made me think that you're able to move the houses. 
And before we started the show, Julia and I were talking about um, some Atlanta beekeepers that have moved their hives, I guess, in the fall, winter, up to... Actually, in June. And so what what people don't um, realize, too, is that the nectar flow in Atlanta is pretty much over when the tulip poplar trees are finished blooming, and it's usually about the same time as the azaleas, azaleas die out. So that's pretty early in the spring when you think about it. So the, yeah, the it nectar is. flow, where there's just a ton of nectar, is kind of over then. So the chance of what they do for the rest of the summer in Atlanta, for the most part, is pretty much just gather ne- enough nectar to live off of. They don't really gather enough to store. So in terms of really putting honey aside, um, they're kind of done late, late spring. And in the mountains, the sourwood trees just start blooming in June, and they bloom through June and July. So a lot of beekeepers take their bees up to the mountains um, all over Georgia for the, they call it the sourwood flow. And that's, how, I mean, whose lands did they put it on? Or do they, how do they know where to put them? Um, people. People have different sources. You know, I talked to someone in um, North Carolina this year who said that they, they have all this land and they used to have a beekeeper who come and would bring bees and make sourwood honey and they would always give them some honey and she so was looking for somebody else. I mean, you need to. They do, yeah. Or it's probably a whole So people get relationships. People. They develop relationships. I mean, and it, it's it's fascinating how a lot of people are so open to bees and they hear about it on the news and they're excited about it and they're like, oh, yeah, come and put some bees on my land. But we um, we have a place in Blue Ridge that we just bought last year. So this was the first summer for us to try bees in Blue Ridge. So how did that go? It went great. Um, You know, I was a little bit anxious because usually you, because of bears, you don't usually beekeepers put uh, electric fences up around their hives um, and their solar power. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't, we had hives in LJ for about three years and we never had anything, any incidents happen with the bear. But, um, but if it does, it's, it's, Devastating because they'll just wipe out the whole hive. They'll just tear it apart and eat every bit of it. So I was a little bit anxious. We didn't put up a, a electric fence, but we were up there a lot. And um, but we so I brought them up. I think it was the second week in June, and they were probably there for about four weeks. And we they made three hives made over 100 pounds of honey. It was like 120 pounds of sourwood honey, which is wow, a, that's a lot of honey. A yeah. premium honey. Sourwood is a um, it has a really wonderful flavor, and it also is really slow to crystallize. So it's it's very valuable for that because Americans don't like their honey crystallized. Are sourwood trees, are they kind of like all over the country, or is that just kind of like an eastern like? That's a fruit? good question. I don't know. Okay. Um, but they it, they I do bloom in the mountains more. Right. I, there's, a, there's a guy who says that the sourwood trees in Atlanta that bloom, that the bees don't get nectar from them. And for some reason, I don't know why. I don't know what they say. But it has to be above a certain elevation before they really mm-hmm. um, bloom. But even in the city of Atlanta... You know, we, a lot of beekeepers get started, and they say, what kind of plants do I need to plant in my front yard for the bees? And they don't realize how much nectar it takes. I mean, it takes, they say, a million blossoms to make one pound of honey. And a typical worker in her lifetime will only make a half a teaspoon of honey. Do you think, think about that? It's so sad. That's why I always scrape every last bit out of the jar. I can get, think about yeah, that worker given her life. But, um, but so actually tree nectar is the biggest source of nectar in the Atlanta area, too. The tulip poplars right, right. are a, a huge source of nectar. And holly. Um, so, you know, definitely the flowers make a difference. But, you you know, in my house, I live. Yeah, you don't um, really think. I mean, I guess the point Julia is trying to make, it is not your gorgeous flowers that are in your yard that are really the source. It's the trees mm-hmm. and the flowers on the trees that are 
the, but the, the, the same, that's true. But at the same time, um, the other reason why bees are such pow- pow- powerful pollinators is because they're actively collecting pollen. Um, you know, butterflies and a lot of other insects are sort of, they're really just there for the nectar. So they're sort of accidental pollinators. They're eating. But they eat the pollen. That's their protein source. Whereas so the they bees eat the honey. So that's. They, and they, they drink the nectar too, mm-hmm. but they actively collect pollen. So a bee will actually go in a flower and shake it to get the pollen to rain down on its body. And it's, the body's covered with hair, so, and the static electricity makes the pollen stick to the hair, the granules. And then what they do, they have rakes on their legs, and they comb themselves while they're flying. And if you Wait a minute. Wait I know. Wait a minute. They have rakes on their legs. Yeah, like combs on their legs. And the so little hair? Mm-hmm, like a comb. Oh, like so they'll take out. their other legs. So they take their legs and they comb their entire bodies. And you can watch them if you just sit out in your garden one day and uh, and pay attention. They comb all the nectar off, and they will spit a little bit of, uh, I mean, sorry, the pollen. They'll spit a little bit of nectar in with it to make it stick together. And then they pack it on a place called their corbicula or their pollen basket on their hind legs. And you can see them. You can see the pollen baskets also really well in um, bumblebees. So, because they move so slowly, but okay. you'll be able to see these clusters of pollen on their hind legs. Okay, we're going to take a break and talk about these saddlebags that the bees <laughs> have to contain pollen in. This is the Master Gardener Hour. We'll be right back. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory. Ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Hi, everybody. It's Don Zabkar, your host for Who Knew? We air Mondays 2 to 3 on America's Web Radio and then occasionally throughout the week. We've got some great subjects. This administration or this regime, as you know, is providing us with great material. So stay tuned. Check us out. America's Web Radio. It's Who Knew? with Don Zabkar. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. This is Cheryl Linker, and I'm here with Julia Mahood, and we're on the Master Gardener Hour. 
And we are talking about bees and backyard beekeeping. This is a subject I cannot get enough of because it just is fascinating to me personally. And I really think, you know, people all over the country are so interested in this. So thank you for being here, Julia. I'm happy to be here. Um, But we were talking about once the bees collect the pollen, that they actually kind of know what to do with it and that they rake it off of their body into their pollen. They they pack it together and they carry it back. on, on the, It's called their corbicula, which is uh, what we call it pollen baskets. So it's on their hind so legs. When they're out in the field. Yeah, so you can okay. watch them. You'll... Uh, and you can also see that bumblebees have the same uh, part of anatomy. You could you could see this little clump of pollen on their hind legs. And as beekeepers, we want to make sure when we and when so when you look in the hive too, you pull out the frames and you'll see the um, the brood, which is the baby bees um, in the cells. And then you'll see these brightly colored um, stores of pollen. And we want to make sure that there's lots of different colors of pollen in there because you'll. That means that they're, they're getting a variety of pollen because just like we need a variety of protein that we eat, they need a variety of protein that they eat. But so they bring it back to you. What if you're making just, you just want sourwood or some specific type honey? Right. Well, so the sourwood, like when we, uh, when our bees made that sourwood honey and, um, there, you know, there was, there's a six week period where they're, that's the only thing blooming. But keep in mind that all spring they've been storing pollen from all these different sources. So they have that to eat. They also, will even though they they kind of get a um they haven't they have an instinct that knows that they need a for a varied diet so there's so much sour blooming that they're going to take advantage of that and go get all that nectar that they can but they're also going to have always have some scout bees out looking for some other sources the other thing is that's really interesting is that there are some sources that are good for pollen and some sources that are good for nectar so sourwood is a really good that. sourwood is a really good nectar source but there are other plants that are a better pollen source. So the bees know when they need, if they need more pollen, they're going to send out a contingent that's going to be looking for a good pollen plants. Okay, so the nectar, how is it? Explain then, I guess. The nectar the turns into next, honey. The nectar, nectar is what? The nectar is, turn, is what they turn into honey. And so the pollen is? The pollen they just bring back and they... That's their food source. And they also eat the nectar too, though. Okay. So they have two food sources. They have honey and they have pollen. Are they both protein? No. Okay. So honey's carbohydrate with all kinds of amino acids and other great so stuff. So the nectar is... And the nectar is what... They they sip the nectar and it goes into their... We call it honey stomach. And it's got enzymes in it that start breaking it down into honey. And then they then they also collect pollen, which they comb and pack. And the little bit of uh, nectar that they spit up into it to make it stick together will actually start fermenting it a little bit. And when it ferments, it breaks down a little bit and makes it digestible. So that's more like the pollen's more like the plant source and the nectar's more like the protein. The protein. No, I'm sorry. The, the pollen is the protein. Okay, pollen is the protein. And the nectar is their carbohydrate and other things. Okay, okay. Okay, thanks. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they they actively collect both, and they're going to collect what, whatever they can when they can. And, I mean, bees, also because they overwinter, they're storing it, which is why we can take advantage of robbing them of their honey, because they, they'll make as much honey as they can get their hands on, their, their feet on, their tarsus on. Right, right, right. So they, um, whenever it's available, they'll keep making honey. As long as they have room to store it, they'll keep making it. And so, so and it's available. So during this process, do you ever, when you look at a hive, I mean, or like a box, do you know 
when it's full of honey and that you need to take some out? Or do you That's just part of the job it? as a beekeeper. And people ask me, you know, how much time does this take? I mean, this is this is a hobby for me, um, and it's uh, it's actually a really reasonable um hobby to have because it doesn't take a ton of time in the winter you're pretty much there's nothing to do for the bees that's when we kind of get our equipment ready for the spring if we're being diligent but um you're you're busy in the spring and then in the summer the bees kind of they really kind of like to be left alone but we do we check on them Uh, in the spring especially when it's busy and there's a nectar flow i would say the most you would would mess with your house would be once a week and you'd really just be checking to see if they need more room because you add a super a super is a box full of frames and in a perfect world in a like perfect climate perfect nectar flow have enough bees they can build out a box with uh, they have to build out the honeycomb first with the wax and they can fill it with honey they can fill a box up in a week I mean that's like a perfect situation, but um, most of the time you need to check on it every every week or two to see if they need more room. And if they filled up one box with honey, you put another box on top, and they'll hopefully fill that so up. Now the if they run out of room, they're going to stop bringing it back. In the so. middle of this process, you can remove some of the honey from the box, correct? You can. Is yeah. that not optimum, or do you wait and do it all at one time? It's just kind of we usually wait just because it's um, there are a couple reasons, but it's a big production too to to harvest the honey. It's a sticky, messy mess, and so it's you don't exciting because you do. But if you're going to do it, you kind of do it all at once. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. And the bees kind of keep it. I mean, they you know bees have stingers and they protect the honey. So sometimes I've gotten it off, and I had some in my screen and porch to and I didn't get around to harvesting it like that day. And the next day I discovered that some raccoons had gotten in the screen and porch and, you know, had fun with my honey and ate it. Oh, I know. So, so I usually try to leave it on them until I'm ready to, to harvest it. Mm-hmm. So what, what I guess I always, when, I, when we're talking, I'm kind of getting uh, like off track. But one thing, the wax. Mm-hmm. How to, can you briefly kind of talk about how they manufacture the wax? Well, wax is another um, another product of the hive that's wonderful, and the bees actually they they make wax from glands in their abdomen. So wax is a lipid; it's a fat, and they um, they secrete it. They have plates on their abdomen, and they, and they secrete it. And then the they, wax comes out of their abdomen. Mm-hmm, it comes out; it's sort of a liquid, and it comes out on these plates, and then it hardens as it when it hits the air and then they'll take it with their mandibles and they chew it and form it the way they want to and it's it's fascinating to watch bees make wax the way um we let them a lot of beekeepers use foundation to to show the bees where they want them to build are you um, talking about the, the frame the strips on the, the frame yeah and um but we just let them make their own so they, they actually they hang from each other it's called um festooning and it's sort of like their plumb line so they're hanging down so they know that the 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 comb's going to go down and they're the young bees have all this wax in their glands and so they secrete it and they pass it up and as they pass it up the heat rises and it helps it to soften and then so they'll start at the top and they make these circles and when they join the circles and it pulls it down it turns it into the hexagons it's absolutely fascinating to watch because they'll start in little clumps and by the time they get together they they uh make them join up and it all is a a beautiful thing and if you let them make their own cells they'll actually make uh cells the right size in the middle because they store their brood in the middle and as the as it goes out to the outer edges where they're storing their honey they'll make the cells bigger so because that's where they're going to store their honey so they they want them to be the right size in the middle right 
that's so interesting. They form a circle and then it kind of drips into the shape of a as it gun. pulls. Yeah, the the other it um it turns into it makes the shape of a okay, hexagon. Okay, so you know there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the people that like to eat the cone and people that absolutely <laughs> think it's disgusting, right? Right. So which one are you? I love the cone. Yeah, I do too. We call it bee gum in our house too. Bee gum? Yeah, because it's um chewy. But we when we harvest the wax, we have tons of wax to make candles. I just made some um, lotion bars using my wax, which was great. One interesting thing about beeswax, though, or, or is that um, uh, as a they say that the beeswax is um, or chemicals are lipophilic, meaning they love fats, and that's where they get stored. Mm-hmm. So any pesticides or anything there in the environment, unfortunately, though, gets stored in the wax or any pesticides that get any chemicals that sometimes beekeepers put chemicals in their hives to keep to keep um, some of the bee pests away. But the problem with that is it does get stored in the wax. Mm-hmm. So it's really important if you're going to eat honeycomb or eat bees, any beeswax that you're sure that the uh, beekeepers are, are chemical-free. Because okay, you wouldn't want to eat that because it just stays absolutely. in there. One of the things that they're telling beekeepers, when I first got started, they would say you can use this thing. Because when you harvest the honey, you, there's a way to do it so that you can reuse the comb that they've built. Um, and they used to say, you know, you should get rid of that comb every five to seven years because it's over time it gets darker. Beeswax, when they make it, is pure white. So it gets darker and darker as it gets um, older. And, um, and But it's, it smells. You can smell it. It just gets kind of funky. So they're saying that they went from saying, or they started saying every five years you should get rid of your comb. Every three years they're saying now. But really in, in a couple of years it gets, it holds stuff. So but usually the... If you buy honeycomb, it's fresh though because you, it's new. You can it's see that it's white. white. It's, it's not white. dark. But um. so once the cone is built, you they will put their brood inside the openings. They'll put their honey inside the openings. You, the brood come out. The honey comes out. So it's used for you know for a while. Okay, that's pretty much in the brood nest, though. So the, what what bees do to make it very easy for beekeepers, which is really nice of them, is they store they have their brood nest at the bottom of their hive, and then they store their honey above it. Okay, so it's pretty easy to harvest. Just uh, okay, it's very easy. Mess. You don't you're, mess. Yeah. Okay. And a, a good responsible beekeeper is going to leave enough honey for the bees so that they can eat their own honey over winter. Okay. So we just take the excess. Okay, if somebody is listening to this show and they're trying to say, would I make a big, good beekeeper, I would what say, would you, how would you advise them? I would say come to our short course, which is the, um, the Metroline Beekeepers has a one-day be- how to become a beekeep- backyard beekeeper course. Mm-hmm. And um, it is October, uh, October, January 18th at the Atlanta Botanical Gardens. And you can register on the Metro Atlanta Beekeepers website. But it's a great way just to spend a day learning about beekeeping and seeing if you want to try it. And we, we schedule it this time of year because, um, for a couple reasons, but the most important one is you will have time if you take the course now. If you want to have bees this summer, because it's a, it's a whole cycle, you can't just go out in June and decide you want to get bees. You have to start at the right time of year so that the bees will have enough time to build up um, strength so that they can overwinter. So well, you if, have you, to if you do it in January, you have to get set up. You have to get set up. You have to, you have to have find to. the right location. You have to get your bees. And um, so it's it's a classroom setting, meaning we're you know we're pretty much going to sit. We try to get up and have you you know like try to light a smoker and do a few active things. But it is in January. It's cold, so we don't have live bees at the course. But what we do is um, with the with the course, you are um, 
encouraged to sign up for some of the hive inspections and um, the, any short course participant. It's really a it's something that we offer the club, the hive inspection program, where you can go to a, a place with and go through a hive with an experienced beekeeper. So someone's going to actually go to a hive. They're going to open it up, do whatever the business needs to be done at that time. Mm-hmm. So we have them all summer, starting spring, summer, fall, um, at the Dunwoody Nature Center, at the at Chastain Park. We've had them in the past at the zoo. Um, and then there's a, a veterinary practice in Alpharetta where a, a, one of our master beekeepers, Melissa Bondurant, does have inspections there. So we have them all over the city. And you just sign up on the website in advance and show up. You just have to have some protective gear. And I we I think most of us have extra protective gear if any somebody's just starting and doesn't have any. Right, right. Um, and it's a wonderful teaching opportunity. So you do get the hands-on experience. You just get it a little later when when the bees are available because it, you never know. In Atlanta in January, you might have a beautiful day, but um, but it's pretty much a classroom setting. Julia, it sounds like a great opportunity. So we're going to take just a little quick break, and we'll be right back with the Master Gardener Hour. This is Peter Wallace inviting you to listen every Sunday morning to Day One with inspiring preachers from America's mainline churches on AmericasWebRadio.com. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Healthcare Consumerism Radio. Learn, connect, share. Join us every Friday at 11 o'clock to learn all those confusing issues around healthcare, Obamacare, Medicare, Medicaid. We'll help you find the answers, help you stay in compliance. Join us Friday at 11 o'clock. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. This is Cheryl Linker, and I'm back with Julia Mahood, and we are talking about beekeeping, and we're talking about getting an education and becoming a hobbyist beekeeper. So I asked Julia, I said, is, you know, with all the press about the decline of bees in our country and the planet, you know, is, is it on the rise again? I mean, are we seeing more people taking interest in caring for these creatures? One of the one of the few good things that has, has come from the, the all the plights that the honeybees have gone through in recent years is that there are more hobbyist beekeepers because of all the press about bees. People get more interested, and one of the great I mean, you, it's really good for the bee population. For the more hobbyist beekeepers get involved, the more people having one or two hives, it's really good for the bees the bee population um but you know people people often ask me they find out i'm a beekeeper i'm a master beekeeper and they say what can i do to help the honeybees and you can become a beekeeper but also you know you don't have to become a beekeeper but you can support the beekeepers in your area you know you can be encouraging to your neighbors who are interested in beekeeping you can welcome the bees a lot of people you know because of uh, bee sting allergies, which I totally understand. They're afraid, and because bees sting children, and I'm a mom, I know how hard it is when your children are hurting. But, um, but educate yourself about honeybees. Honeybees are the most peaceful 
of the stinging insects. You know, they really do not want to sting you. Unlike wasps and hornets, honeybees have a barbed stinger. So when the, when they sting you, they die. So first of all, they don't want to die necessarily. And they really are only going to sting if they're, they feel under attack. So we live in, um, in Sandy Springs inside the perimeter on a, in a ranch on a little less than a half an acre. And I've had bees hives in the backyard for, gosh, I guess this is our 10th year. And I've, I have a 17 year old and a 14 year old. And no child has ever been stung in my backyard. We've had a trampoline, swing set, who was just playing and, you know, just having, being out. And we spent a lot of time outdoors. I mean, it's kind of, when you think about how many bees have lived in my backyard, it's kind of amazing. But they do not want to sting. They mm-hmm. are, they really, you have to be in the hive messing with them. And then they're defending their territory. Mm-hmm. Um and a lot of beekeepers don't know it doesn't even wear gloves most of the time. He just moves real slowly because the gloves become cumbersome. You know, wearing all that gear, you're happy to do it at first, but um, it does get to be cumbersome. So a lot of beekeepers hardly ever get stung. And then when they do get stung, though, you, you build up sort of an immunity. So it's just not a big deal to most beekeepers. But anyway, it's just encouraging your neighbors and don't... Um, and also uh, provide a good habitat for the bees. The things you can do are just things like use common sense with chemicals. Um, don't oh, I have a real problem with people spraying their backyards for mosquitoes. I know the mosquitoes are miserable in Atlanta, and I know it's awful. <laughs> but they you are. have to realize that when you spray yeah. for mosquitoes, you're killing every living, every flying insect. You're going to kill. You're going to any honeybees that are in the backyard when the spray goes off. You're going to kill them. And you know, I have a girlfriend who was. Who she came to me and sort of she was ashamed, admitted that she was having her backyard spray. And she said, "But Julia, it's natural. It's made from marigold. It's some kind of substance that, and it's natural, so it's okay." But what you don't realize is it may be made from um, essential oils or whatever. But it's in such a high concentration that it that makes it an unnatural concentration. So probably coat the bees down. With if it's going to kill a yeah. uh, mosquito, it's going to kill a bee. It right. doesn't matter if it's natural. And, the, um, and this particular friend had these these peppers that she was nursing, these pepper plants that she, and they just would not fruit and would not fruit. And I was like, well, you don't have any pollinators back there. You know, she, she insisted that that wasn't the case, but she gave me one, she had them in pots and I took it home and it immediately, you know, it was bloomed and turned done. and fruited and turned into peppers. But, um, but it also said that about the habitat. I, I do have a question about this because, uh, I have a, uh, one of my neighbors has bees and, on my property, I have like six different major water sources. You know, I have a big pond, waterfall. I have tons of like fountains and water and, you know, and I, I go out and her bees are thankfully, cause I have a, a gazillion, you know, flowers and trees and everything. I mean, I feel like I must produce so much honey out of my yard, but they all drink. From your water sources? From my water sources. Mm -hmm. And I, how important really is it to have a water source right on your property if you have bees? One thing about being an urban beekeeper is you have to be respectful and responsible to your neighbors. And providing a water source is really important. The danger can be that if you're, and a lot of people think, oh, I just have to put a, you know, put water out. But Atlanta, as you know, it gets so hot, it's really easy for that to dry up. So we have a little... 
an expensive fountain, and I just make sure that it's always running. So, and I, I see the bees going to it constantly. But there is, there's a danger. The honeybees like, they don't like clean water. They like smelly water, and they love swimming pools, unfortunately. Yeah, so they do like swimming pools. if your neighbor has a swimming pool, you need to make sure that your bees have a water source where they're going to your water source. Now, there is a way to sort of train the bees. Once they once they find a water source, they stick to it. So if, I, I know beekeepers who have had a problem where their water source dried up and they went to their neighbor's pool. But there's a way to kind of lure them back to your water source, so you can do that. But, and um, you don't mean just having one of those bee bottles of water, right? No. How, could, how in the world could that provide enough water for a whole yeah. box? But, I mean, you could have a... But you could have a dripping hose, a little, but a little fountain, a little cheap Home Depot fountain, one that's got enough of a system that's not going to dry up. Yeah, you I know, recommend that. Is what, yeah, and and you know, communicate with your neighbors. Tell them if you have. I always tell my neighbors to tell me if the bees start showing up at your pool, um, so that they can kind of rectify the situation. But that's another reason to find out what you're doing and know how to, you know, know how to set up your yard so that you're going to. It's going to be um, responsible to your neighbors. The other thing about urban beekeeping that you don't want to happen: bees, um, bees will swarm, and this will start happening in February, March in Atlanta. And um, we always get calls. Um, and the Metro Atlanta Beekeepers website has a place if you see a right. swarm where you can call. That's so, yeah, and sure the bee swarming is, it's just when bee—that's their natural way of reproducing. It's sort of like we, you know, we have children, and we mm-hmm. we they grow up, and then we want them to go out and have their own home, right? Hopefully. And um, that's the honeybees, when a colony's strong, what they're going to do is they, if they've come through the winter really strong, they're going to make this huge population explosion. And the way for the hive to reproduce is that they've got enough bees, then half the bees will leave with the old queen, and the bees who are left behind will stay and raise a new queen. And um, what they do, it's really, it's fascinating to watch if you've never seen it. They, they, they usually swarm between 10 and 2 in Atlanta. And you'll hear this roar, and you, it's just a big cloud of bees flying in a in a cloud. And what they'll do is they'll leave the hive, and they'll settle somewhere, usually on a tree branch or sometimes on a fence or sometimes way up high in the trees, and it's just a big clump of bees. And um, people get, especially if you don't know what you're seeing and you see this flying cloud of stinging insects, it's kind of freaky. But what you don't know is that the bees, because they're they're going out to find a new home. So they're going to go settle, settle somewhere. And while they're all clumped up around their queen, because they smell the queen, there are scout bees going out to find a, a nest site. And they're going to go look for a, an enclosed cavity, and their their ideal um, measure is 40 liters. It's like a 40 liter enclosed cavity. So if you think about, we don't have many hollow trees anymore, right? So they could get into the um, side of your house. They could make a nest in between the walls, which we don't want to do that to our neighbors because it can be a humongous mess. Now most swarms, sadly, don't live they only about 20 percent of swarms survive because they have to find the right home then they have to have the right circumstance they have That's to so start from scratch but um but as beekeepers there's steps you take so what what i do in the spring is i'm monitoring my hives and i know if it's getting crowded then i'll just take out half the bees and put them in a new hive and that's a, one way that you can reproduce. well that's reproduction. perfect you're yeah. set up but well, as a beekeeper, so you need to you need to be prepared for that, and you can do things. You can take some of the bees out and give them to somebody else. But um, but monitoring that is important, and being Does a responsible the Metro beekeeper. Atlanta Beekeeping Association. If someone gives them a call and they see the swarm and it's out and it's looking around, can you 
can you guys capture them Please. and put them yes. in a hive? All you can call house. a beekeeper. Call a beekeeper, and you can call. There's a there's a hotline on the Metro Atlanta website. For so that would be something you guys would be looking for. Absolutely. And what we don't want you to do is spray them with poison. Right, right, right. So what, because they're they're going out and they've got to have all this time to find a new home, what they've done is they've sucked up so much honey that their abdomens are full of honey, and it's kind of hard for them to sting you. It's kind of like if you eat too much spaghetti, you don't really feel like getting up and doing any right, taekwondo. Right. So they... Um, it's hard for them to sting you, and they're also not going to be likely to sting you because they're not defensive. They're not defending a home anymore. It's just them and their queen, and they're really not in defensive mode. They're actually in their most docile mode. When you see those pictures of people with bee beards, mm, you know, yeah, I've seen that. what that is is a swarm, and they put the queen under their chin, and the bees will just all clump under it. And those people, I mean, they're putting the bees on their most vulnerable part of their body. They're, so they're really least likely to sting you. The other thing is they're going to be gone in 24 to 48 hours. They're so going to act fast. You gotta act fast, and the other thing, and if it's freaking you out, they're not going to be there long. They're not making a nest on. They have to be in an enclosed cavity. They're not going to make a nest if they are on your fence post in your backyard. So, um, so. Don't spray them. Call a beekeeper. If you can get on the website, we've got that hotline. And do you guys with... have a list of people that are waiting for hives? We do. Well, we have a list of people who want to catch swarms. Now, and catching a swarm is a great way to get free bees, but it's really not free because we go on a lot of swarm calls uh, where we, we get there and the bees have left. Or you catch a swarm sometimes and you put them in and you think that put them in a nest box and you think they're happy and they leave. They have a mind of their own. So you don't really know. So it's, it's, oh. it's not a sure thing, but it's really, it's, it's fun. It's exciting it's and start. it's a really fun it's a thing. Start. And it can be a start, a good way to get bees. But there have been some years when we get no swarm calls. And then last year we got a ton of swarm calls. We got lots of them. And, but I would do you say. Think that's because of your education of the public or do you think it's because. I don't know what it is. There were more. I do have one. I have a. Uh, there's a um, a really nice uh, pest control guy who got my name somehow, and he, he gives my name out to people who call and say, um, oh, you know, you're not allowed to kill honeybees, but I've got this swarm, and or, or they'll call a they'll call a pest control person to come kill them, and a, a, good, a good exterminator with, uh, will say, no, don't don't kill them, call a beekeeper. Are you registered with all the Metro Atlanta Extension offices? No, but that's a good idea. You would be a really good they, idea. Yeah. They're in a lot of times the first people to get mm. calls about that because I've been on the Hort line answering calls and have talked to people, and we have a list of like they're not exterminators, but they're like animal handlers. But mm-hmm. I did not know that. I don't think they have any affiliation with that's Metro a great Atlanta idea. beekeepers. Yeah, we need to do that because so we have a we have a good hotline set up where one person we have we have people designated in areas. So if it's in Marietta, there's a guy that gets yeah. The call. We should do yeah, the five Metro counties mm-hmm. and register with their hotline and give them their number and give them all idea. your information. Mm-hmm. You know, before that starts going on in spring. Wow, this is just amazing. So when, once. It, that would be so disappointing if you were lucky enough to get a swarm, you had the box, you put it in there, and they didn't like it. How do you? Well, it doesn't happen to what, what has happened to me before. I have had that happen once. And then another time, I've caught a swarm where my hive swarmed, and I caught them and put them in a box, and they decided to leave anyway. And who knows why. They just Maybe they wanted to be in a different part of town. I don't know. But, um, but. It is, um, I mean, that's one thing that's endlessly fascinating about bees, and one thing that's frustrating, but it's but it's interesting, is you think you got it figured out, you think you know what they want, and then 
they do something different and they there it's an it's we have a saying if you you know it's an old joke but if you ask 10 beekeepers a question you get 11 answers i mean everybody's got their own theory about why they do how they do what they do but Julia, we're going to take a quick break we're going to take a quick break with the master gardener hour and we will be right back with our final segment on beekeeping hi i'm paisley mcdonald and i'd like to invite you to listen to my show at home with paisley every week thursday at 3 p.m eastern for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear all of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on itunes You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Hi, I'm Ray Bowman, hoping you'll join us each Friday at noon for our new show, Food and Farm, brought to you by FeedStuffsFoodLink.com, only on America's Web Radio. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. This is Cheryl Linker, and I'm here with Julia Mahood, and we are continuing on with discussion of what Metro Atlanta beekeepers, what this association does, what they offer as far as education um, about beekeeping. And then we were just going to talk about some opportunities, and these things really, uh, for our audience, these things go on in all parts of the country. I mean, if you... Google your um, local beekeeping association. I guarantee you that these same quality and caliber of classes through your university system, your extension office, and your beekeeping associations will be there for you. But uh, Julia was saying that one of our... (laughs) cool hotels in Atlanta now has, tell us about it, Julia. Well, the, the chef at the Four Seasons Hotel in Midtown has had hives on their roof, on their terrace uh, level for years now, and they, um, they use the honey in their spa now, and he uses it in the restaurants, which is kind of a, it's kind of a thing. I think there's, there are hotels in Chicago who have bees in their rooftop gardens, and um, all over the place. It's kind of become a, a cool thing to do. But there, you'd be surprised how many beekeepers there are. I mean, there are beekeepers everywhere. And when I, um, when we first got started, we were out in our front yard with our bee suits on, and this neighbor who I hadn't met yet pulled up, and he's like, oh, you all have bees? I have bees too. And he lived on the adjacent street. So there are actually like four beekeepers in my neighborhood, which and we totally unrelated. It's not like they were friends of mine who became beekeepers. They were just people we we ended up connecting because of beekeeping. But there are a lot of beekeepers. Um, Emory University has a program now with the they do research on bees and um, Georgia Tech um, got bees last year. Last year at our short course we had six or seven of the people from Georgia Tech taking the short course and they're doing some fascinating research. Um, Jennifer Levy at Georgia Tech is, I think, heading it all up, and they have bees on a on a rooftop 
down in Georgia Tech. I haven't seen them yet, but it's a it's a fascinating program. So there are honeybees, and it, it's just wonderful to see on so many different levels. You've got hobbyist beekeepers doing it for their local plants and gardens and to get honey, and then you've got research programs happening in the city, and it's just it's good for the bees to have people interested on so many levels. And because of all that, uh, there's, there's education going on on every level. Well, you know, you were talking about... Um, Julia is a master beekeeper, and we were talking about the level above that. There's one more master craftsman, master, master craftsman. and that involves research. Um, it, it involves a lot of um, a lot more. Every step up is another level, but um, you have to either participate in a research program or or have an the level of involvement would would be more like a um, commercial beekeeper, yeah, right. where you're it's, it's more of a full time job. Are, are there commercial beekeepers in Georgia? Oh, there's tons. Georgia's one of the Georgia is the state that produces more bees than any other state. In okay, the tell country. me the I mean, just tell me where are they and how do they work? I don't know how that um, scenario works. A commercial beekeeper would be someone who has um, a big bee farm where they have enough land and bee has where they are raising bees and so that they have an excess of bees. And just like I was saying, how have a nor- normally naturally swarm in the spring, if your bees are healthy, you're going to have extra bees. So they, they raise bees, they raise um, nucleus colonies. There's, uh, there's, there's lots and lots of them from all outside of Atlanta. So there's some. So if you Atlanta. were a new beekeeper hobbyist, would you go to a commercial place to buy your bees? You would. I mean, so there, there are, when I say commercial beekeeper, I mean full-time beekeepers. So there are okay. people who raise bees, and then there are also commercial beekeepers who raise bees, who, who rent their bees out for pollination services. And that's what you hear about in the news about the bees being put on trucks and trucked around, trucked and to, going to California, California for to, the almond the population. Almond. Right. Okay. We talked about that right. before. Okay. So um, that's... That's part of it, but um, but also just people who full-time raise bees and they sell bees. So one of the things we do at the short course is we give out a list of suppliers, and these are people who have bees available in, in the Atlanta area, Georgia area, mm-hmm. um, and you can get bees in the mail. Um, it's probably best to go pick them up, and usually it's... It's not a big I don't deal. trust anything to the mail, even like a scarf. <laughs> it's after my experience over oh. these holidays, I tell you. Right. But... Um, but anyway, um, so we give you a list of we give we give our participants a list of suppliers, and they can uh, mm-hmm. so you buy bees either by the pound, with so you'd get like three pounds of bees and a queen, or and they'll start a new colony, or you get what's called a nucleus hive or a nuke, and then you get you get five frames that are full of. Um, wax and brood and so the queen is already laying so she sort of has a jump start on it which is a great way i mean there's no reason why you can't get a nuke and uh, early in this this year and be able to harvest a little bit of honey on your first year which is always the tastiest oh wow has there ever been like a count of 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 estimated count of hives or do you guys ever have one day a year that everybody calls in and says i have this estimate of this we don't do that we don't um in florida they're they have to register their bees because of um the the africanized honeybee situation right right but there's not really but it's i mean we have i I think we have 120 members of metro atlanta beekeeper association those are just the people who join the bee club you'd be surprised how many beekeepers there are but the more the better just because it 
it of education takes the stigma right. away, and it's also good for your yard. You know, one of the things that we didn't touch on in the with the pollination is that if a like with the zucchini plant, if a insect comes in and pollinates it twice, you'll have a decent sized zucchini. But if they come in six or eight times, you'll have a much bigger zucchini. So the the number of times that a plant gets pollinated also really important. And if you've got honeybees in your yard or your neighborhood, as a master gardener, I never knew that. Know. I thought. Once it's it was, true. it was once if it, it was done, it was done mm-hmm. because there's all different. You know, every uh, it's fascinating. But um, so and like I was saying that you know, in your yard you may not have enough uh, nectar source to to really make honey, but your bees will positively impact your yard and your garden and all the gardens around you. So that's another reason to welcome beekeepers into your neighborhood because it'll be great for your plants. Oh, my plant! My I have a beautiful garden and I. You know, I appreciate the bees mm-hmm. that are in my yard. Just communicate with your neighbors who are beekeepers. You know, let them know if it's if there are too many bees in your fountain. I mean, that can certainly be a problem. But just communicate with them and yeah, encourage absolutely. each other. And absolutely. Okay, I'm going to put Julia on the spot. She's going to go. We're going to try to find a research program for you. <laughs> and I would like to know, in your 10 years' experience, what would you like to know about bees or study further that just you personally that you just have the one part of the whole process that you want to know more about well one thing i've been interested in researching is um the how to raise bees who were healthy without a dependency on chemicals oh very and it's very a big good it's research. a big problem and it's because in Georgia we have so many bees and so many beekeepers, it's it's really hard to to get like a to raise bees without any. Do they pay us some when you get like if you get a bee from an inhect, infected hive or some a problem here, and then you mix it in with yours, or does it just or does, does the disease problem start? You know, the, our, in, our biggest in, problem is um is the varroa mite. Right. So it's a mite. It's not a disease. Okay. Um, And what needs to happen is we need to have, we need to breed bees who are, who can live with the mites alongside them. And how in the heck are you going to do that? Well, my theory is that you kind of have to let them, let them evolve. Let them evolve so that poor, you know, a poor parasite is going to kill its host, right? Right. So, and what happens is, um, the, the Americans want to they put poison on things that like oh let's kill this parasite. What you end up doing is breeding a stronger parasite. It's just like just like and then we've got these strain. exactly. It's the same thing. So, but it's really difficult because the only way to to breed this symbiotic relationship would be to stop treating altogether, and that's really hard to do because that means suffering losses and you know people want to keep. Yeah, I've heard bees. Darwin would say, you know, know. The strong survive. But a lot of people say, well, you know, these are pets. You can't just let them die or, you know, and we, I sur- you know, we may not be here if it weren't for vaccines and stuff, but we're not talking about humans and we're not really talking about pets. They're, the bees aren't, I mean, I have love them. Any, have there been any studies done on, like, slower um, exposure to these pests that have, and they've become Stronger well, there are there are people who there are beekeepers in other parts of the country. There's a Michael Bush in Nebraska who's a wonderful beekeeper who doesn't use anything. When the varroa population hit there in the 80s, 
they suffered, he suffered losses, but now he has no problems because he doesn't treat. And he lives in an open area where there's not, I mean, Georgia, we have so many beekeepers clusters so tight. It's really hard to have, to really breed a population of bees that are resistant. So, and I'm on the fringe about this, by the way, I'm really kind of, I'm speaking from my own, this is my personal belief, not the belief of the Metro Atlanta Beekeeper Association. But, um, so, but one of the things I've been interested in doing, if I did participate in some research is maybe getting some land and North Georgia and setting up some hives and seeing how long I could keep some colonies going and have them breed a I have no idea how unre, how realistic it is but to breed bees who can cohabit and breed mites I guess who are so resistant. they can coexist yeah and just the exposure it's probably a pipe dream though I mean <laughs> it's but, gonna I mean, be hard I, I think but it's, it has happened in other parts of the country but there are people who argue that it's not really happening but it is I mean there are people in other parts of the country who who don't have the problems that we have. And some of it is we also have a problem with hive, small hive beetles. They don't have those in the Northeast because they have such cold winters that it kills them all. Right, the small right. hive beetles also a problem that we Does have. Does it have anything to do with the cleanliness of the boxes? And the no, hives, nothing. It's just well, small hive beetles really don't kill the hive unless the hive is weak. Okay. But hives become weakened by chemicals and pesticides, right, I believe. Right. They really right. do. And it, it may not – things that are safe – mean it won't kill the honeybee, but it doesn't mean it doesn't affect their orientation or their, you know, all that stuff about the neonicnotoids that it affects their orientation. They have films of of honeybees landing on sunflowers, and then they kind of woozily fall off. I mean, it doesn't kill They're them, drunk. but it's... They're drunk with pesticides. Yeah, and it affects their orientation and all kinds of things. So just because it doesn't kill them doesn't mean it makes them stronger. It probably right. makes them weaker. Right. So do bees ever get lost? I mean, <laughs> when question. they're coming back? They're pretty good at it. I mean, I don't know, maybe, but I guess that would be natural selection, right? They die out somewhere and wouldn't reproduce. But the bees, um, and bees are really, they have a tremendous, they have two compound eyes and three simple eyes called a cell eye on the top of their head. And they know exactly where their nest is, and they know exactly how to come back to that particular nest. And then when they get closer, they have a smell because their queen has a particular pheromone, but they know exactly how to come home. It's really fascinating to watch them. Wow. What's the coolest thing that people are going to learn in the short course on the 18th? Oh, gosh. There's just too many things. Oh, give me one. Give me one since I'm not going to be able to go on the best thing. Okay. The queen lays 2,000 eggs a day, but I already told you that. Yeah, I think that's, that's fascinating. Just Isn't that amazing? Can yeah, you imagine really, doing that much really work in one amazing. day? <laughs> and you'll learn about the caste system and all the different bees. I mean, so it's basically bees 101. Yes, it is. Starting out. Yeah. So is it appropriate for, like, high school students? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. What about, like, middle schoolers? If you have a middle schooler who could pay attention for... Um, all day long, then they would be welcome. Hey, probably some of the middle schoolers will pay attention better than the adults will. They very well might. It's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I tell you something, Julia. It's been a treat to have you back with us. And one of my very favorite topics. And Julia Mahood of the Metro Atlanta Beekeeping Association. Just Google us and you'll find a link to register for the site for the course. It'd be great. Thanks for listening to the Master Gardener Hour. We'll be back next Saturday. Be safe.